0: When I was a kid, I always enjoyed watching the antics of Tom and Jerry. It was good, wholesome TV at dinnertime as we'd throw on Nickelodeon and we'd see a, a mouse send a cat to the hospital about every 14 seconds. And having three siblings myself, I learned a couple of things. Like, hmm, how can I take what Jerry's doing to Tom and how can I do that to my brother or my sister or something like that, and, you know? The stuff of good wholesome TV in the mind of a influential middle schooler. But I always liked one antic that, um, that Jerry did. Jerry was the mouse, if you happen to grow up before Tom and Jerry, and Tom was the cat who always bullied him. Jerry would hide behind a wall and he'd have a flashlight. And he'd set the, the flashlight down in the down low so that as the light hits. Jerry's tiny little mouse body. On the wall in front, there'd be this huge, gigantic mouse. And Tom, even though he's a, a gnarly cat, sees this huge mouse on the wall and goes, ah, and shoo, darts off the other way. And then little tiny Jerry comes out, and he's still just this little tiny mouse. And like, oh, I like that. Wouldn't it be nice if all of our limitations and the stuff that holds us back were really just oversized shadows? And really, when we saw them for what they were in the real light, they're just a tiny... Okay, I get some people may be afraid of mice, but they were just this little tiny mouse. Maybe there's a little more truth to that concept than we might think. And I'm going to read today's story out of Joshua 2. And it really is, it's a little bit longer and it's a story. So I'm not going to put it up on the screen. I'm going to save Linda from having to try and follow along with me on this one. But hear it as a story. And see if amidst that, you know, we had talked uh, earlier in 1 Corinthians about, oh, let's see if we can find some of that phrasing that God used. Um... Using, using the weak, uh, God's foolishness being wiser than human wisdom, um, God choosing what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, what is weak in the world to shame the strong. I bet there'll be a place where you can pick up on some of those characters in this story. Out of Joshua 2, this is verses 1 through 21, and I will set, this, set the stage for this in a little bit here, but this will stand on its own. Then Joshua, son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, Canaan, the promised land that they had been waiting for 40 years to be able to get into. Especially, view Jericho. So they went, and they entered the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and spent the night there. The king of Jericho was told, Some Israelites have come here tonight to search out the land. So the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come only to search out the whole land. But the woman took the two men and hid them. Then she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. And when it was time to close the gate at dark, the men went out. Where the men went, I don't know. Pursue them quickly, for you can overtake them. She had, however brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. So the men pursued them on the way to the Jordan, as far as the fords. As soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gates to the city were shut. Before they went to sleep, she, Rahab, came up on the, up to the two spies on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that is of you has fallen on us. And all the inhabitants of the land melt in fear before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites that were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no courage left in any of us because of you. The Lord, your God, is indeed God in heaven above and on earth below." Now then, since I have dealt kindly with you, swear to me by the Lord that you in turn will deal kindly with my family. Give me a sign of good faith that you will spare my father and my mother, my brother and my sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. The men, the spies, said to Rahab, our life for yours. If you do not tell this business of ours, then we will deal kindly and faithfully with you when the Lord gives us the land. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the outer side of the city wall, and she resided within the wall itself. She said to them, Go toward the hill country, so that the pursuers may not come upon you. The pursuers went west. She's sending them east for a little bit. Hide yourselves there three days until the pursuers have returned, and then afterwards you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be released from this oath that you have made us swear to you, If we invade the land and you do not tie this crimson cord in the window through which you have let us down, and you do not gather into your house your father and your mother, your brothers and all your family, if any of you go out of the doors of your house into the street, they shall be responsible for their own death, and we shall be innocent. But if a hand is laid upon any who are in your house, we shall bear responsibility for their death. But if you tell this business of ours then we shall be released from this oath, you made us swear to you. She said, according to your words, so be it. She sent them away and they departed. Then she tied the crimson cord in the window. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, 40 years in the making now, Israel is finally ready to cross the Jordan River into the promised land. They had made their escape from Egypt gone 40 years through the wilderness. God gets them to the river to where they can see it. But because of some shortcomings, if you will, with Moses, he's he's allowed to get to the river, but he's not allowed to take them across. And so Moses, head honcho, I mean, one of the biggest names in Israelite history, has now died. He's given his last couple sermons in the book of Deuteronomy, and young Joshua is called to fill his sandals. Talk about the weak taking the place of the strong. But <laughs> on top of it, as though, he doesn't have, as though filling Moses' shoes isn't big enough, he gets across, and the first thing he's going to run into, probably about three or four miles from the river, you can probably see it from the other side, Is the fortress of Jericho. A place that could sustain itself for quite a long time. God forbid anybody try to, from the outside, try to um, rough up the Jerichoans. I mean, it was actually, it was called the city of palm trees, which in the desert, it had these springs that would come up from within the city. So you know, all right, this is a place that has some natural resources just within its own walls that could be contained. Relatively speaking, it's fairly high, so it's easier to defend and has people inside that should invaders come and try to mess with them, they, they are a people that can, Respond with very bad intentions to any outsiders. And this is Joshua's first challenge as a leader. Welcome to leadership, Joshua. Here's the fire to be baptized by. But Joshua is a good military man. And he sends spies across the the land um, ahead of the Israelites, says, Scope out the land. Especially check out this fortress, Jericho, because we need to We probably think we need to know something about this. So two spies get in to the city, and they enter into the house of a harlot. Now, it's not exactly what makes Joshua a good military man, but there's actually a bit of wisdom to it, as we'll see. Because the scholars like to downplay her career choice a little bit, um, and they just call her an innkeeper, which, yes, she was probably that because... The two were often synonymous with each other, but when you get to the New Testament references of looking back at who Rahab was, the language they use makes it pretty clear what she did for a living. She is full on apart, totally sold out for the pagan society of which she lives in now she 's also probably again an innkeeper because um, People who ran houses of ill repute usually ran houses for their business. And so this is the part where I say that um, the spies were at least wise and that they kind of make a contact with a harlot. And it's, so it's not very odd for foreigners to be in this setting. The how, you know, the inn of a, of a prostitute doesn't raise any eyebrows or whatnot, even though it It eventually kind of does. They play it as well as they can. And in conversing with Rahab, these two men find out that she knows a few things. And they also learn a few things as well. Things that really kind of change the course of even how things look for us here today in the 21st century. She learns, or she acknowledges, I should say, God is frightfully powerful. This God that these two spies are, are representing the people of, if you will. We see it in verses 9 and 10. Rahab's telling the spies, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that dread has fallen on us, the Canaanites, those in Jericho, that all the inhabitants of the land melt in fear before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did, to the two kings of the Amorites that were beyond the Jordan, Desaiun and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. You have this track record of military victory. And even though we're in this awesome fortress, people, you basically walk in and the people of Jericho are jello. God, while gracious to those who are on his side, is feared by the opposite. And with good reason, Rahab says. And all of those within Canaan are in option two. They're the ones who, they've been, you know, as I said, full-on pagan society, not exactly friends of the Israelites, of God's people or their God. So they fall into the, oh no, God's coming after us. And the people knew it. And so did Rahab, even though she's maybe the, the one person who's actually putting it into words Vocalizing, look, we're scared to death of you. But while gracious. And even though we um, God is still powerful beyond our capacity to grasp. As Jesus alludes to in Matthew 10, says, Don't fear those who can kill the body but can't kill the soul. That's the, the people in Jericho. They can wipe, wipe out bodies. We'll see it again in uh, two weeks. An army that can wipe out bodies. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Rahab got it. This God of these Israelites who are just waiting across the river to, it, to invade, to take over. This is not a God to be messed with. Even for our, all our New Testament emphasis on the grace of God. But let's take the converse of this. For a minute. Because we often can look at it and go, okay, um, you know, the Canaanites are afraid of God and and God's people are going to overtake the land, and we can sort of miss the part that on the surface maybe these spies haven't picked up on. The spies are starting to learn, talking to, to Rahab, how Jericho feels. You ever get the sense that God's asking you to do something? It sounds like a Goliath idea. A Jericho idea. If I can steal my theme from last week. In fact, let's do a little bit of an experiment here. I have prepped this only to say no bodily harm will come from this experiment. And for the record, she didn't know where I was gonna go with any of my message so far, so she she ended up tying that in. Props. But here's my point. For some people, what Deanna just did, sharing in a prayer situation, a prayer request, a prayer answer, you've got 20 people here, that's public speaking. Now I know I could, I could throw this at Deanna because she's been in front of people for decades as a, as a teacher, but public speaking is usually one of those things that there's a fear of death and then there's the fear of public speaking. And it sounds disproportionate, but until you deal with it, yeah, that can be pretty accurate. I was just talking to some pastors at a party yesterday, and we're like, yeah, how many of us actually thought we'd be up doing public speaking for a living? And mind-blowing. But here's the point. You can be so afraid to stand up, to grab a microphone to share an answer to prayer or a prayer request. We're not even talking, do a solo. And then you do it, maybe even you're shaking your boots, but then you click the microphone off, you sit down and you're like, that's what I was afraid of? These are friends, they didn't tomato me out the door. That was what I was scared of? I, I imagine the scene, in Empire Strikes Back, where Darth Vader, who is so heavily feared for, at that point, probably a, a full two movies, he, Empire, I will rule. And we have this fear of this dark character. And he takes his mask off, he takes his helmet off after his son has all but killed him. And he's like, I want to see you with my own eyes. And he takes his mask off. And he's thinking, looks like Uncle Fester. And I'm like, I look at him and I'm watching the scene and I'm like, that's the dude we were afraid of? This fearful second in command only to the, to the emperor and he basically is a bald guy with a scratched up face. This is who, who had nothing when it came to the voice you know, other than the voice changer thing. He just sounded like a regular guy. Sometimes we build up so much. We look at the the oversized mouse shadow that gets cast on the wall by the light and go, God could never use us to do that. God could never use little old me to be able to share an answer to prayer or a musical solo. I get musical solo can be a little bit it has this whole level of, in, of intimidation, props. But on the back end, think about it. The God who is calling you to do whatever that thing is, whether it's share an answer to prayer, it will go that simple. Saying hi to someone, being able to share the life and hope of Jesus, the God who's calling you to do that scary thing has that scary thing back on its heels. Just like he did with big, bad Jericho. This monster of a city. We read Rahab's house is on the wall. I mean, imagine a, all right, this is an inn. Imagine a three-bedroom, two-bath two house on the wall. That's how big this wall is how fortress this city is. And God's got that city back on its heels, jello in the hands of the Israelites, being led by Joshua in his first military conquest. Rehab also knows salvation doesn't require a PhD. See it in verse 11. The Lord your God is indeed God in heaven above and on earth below. Rahab's essentially confession of faith. Now she's coming out of a pagan society. No seminary, no church, no temple, probably. All she knows is she's part of a culture that deals with story and history and, and something has gotten passed on. It's amazing she knows this much. But this much she owns. She knows what God has done, knows this God is for real. I believe the Holy Spirit doing what only the Holy Spirit can do has brought her to this point, that she can know this stuff even living in a pagan society, even doing what she does for a living. And Here's the blessing. Even generations later, we don't need to have all the answers to experience life and hope in God. Now, knowledge is helpful, absolutely. Growth is certainly a good thing. And as we are maturing and being immersed in the word over months and years and decades of life, depending on how our story is played out, hopefully our depth of knowledge is growing. But while salvation is profound, a profound concept, it's not complex. And with what little she has, she chooses her camp and goes all in, I'm for God's people. I'm for your people. I'm willing to even go double agent against my own people, against my own city, to help you. All her hope is in God. We'll see where that gets her in a little bit. But she also learned salvation lies in a promise. See, in verses 12 and 14. Now, this is a promise among people. Now then, since I have dealt kindly with you, speaking to the spies. Swear to me by the Lord that you will in turn deal kindly with my family. Give me a sign of good faith. And the men said to her, our life for yours. If you do not tell this business of ours, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you when the Lord gives us the land. With that promise comes instructions from the spies. Here's how to make sure that we are on the same page and we know which house to keep safe. Just tie this cord together, put it outside your window, and, and gather your family together in the house, and we will keep this house safe. Two things to glean: There's one house in Jericho that's going to offer salvation. Not one option of many. Not hey, you can go to Rahab's house, or you can go to Mary's house, or Ruth's house, or you know you can have your pick or choose where you want to be. Everything else is going to get destroyed. By God's hand. In a pretty impressive fashion. (laughs) God never claims to be. One option among many. For salvation. There doesn't become a third hidden option. It's pretty much his house or destruction. But here's the thing. It's not. We're going to get a bit symbolic here. But it's not just the cord. That saves Rahab and her family. But it's a deep red. Scarlet. Cord. Let me go back a little bit to how this story has begun when pre-Red Sea parting and ironically it's called the Red Sea while I talk about crimson ropes but as this adventure is beginning and, and Moses' is called to this Jericho calling hey, go before the most powerful man in the world and tell him to let the slaves go and have fun God offers 10 plagues to kind of try and persuade Pharaoh a little bit. And it gets around to the 10th one and and Pharaoh, like a good Dutch Egyptian, says, No, not having my slaves. He gets around, yeah, rage picked up on that one. He gets to the last one and and he preps God's people. We see in Exodus 12, they shall take some of the blood from the sacrificial lamb there that is a part of this ceremony and put it on the two doorposts and the lintels of the house in which they eat it. The blood shall be a sign, think blood, think crimson, think red, think connection here, shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood of red, I will pass over you and no plague shall destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be a day of remembrance for you. You shall celebrate it as a festival of the Lord. The Passover, when the angel of the Lord passed over, so aptly named, the houses that were so marked, preventing them from suffering the 10th plague. Throughout your generations, you shall observe it as perpetual ordinance. And that scarlet thread that Rahab and her family are going to put out the window is sort of symbolic of that red that was put on the doorpost. You might even think the bread that eventually, when it came, when the symbolism came to be reality, would be the blood that's on a nail, on a slab of wood, on a hill called Calvary. Scholars even say that. Houses of ill repute would paint their windowsills, the horizontal part of the window, red to kind of mark the nature of the business going on here. Foreigners could find their way. Well, what happens when you take a red windowsill and you drop a red cord across it? And this is what the spies are starting to see from over the wall at Jericho. Both sides keep their promise. Rahab keeps quiet. The spies ultimately protect the house. And Rahab eventually learns God works in really creative ways. Because even though her house was saved, and that in itself is a miraculous event, the story doesn't end for Rahab with the story of Jericho. But Rahab eventually marries a man named Salmon, who eventually together they will father Boaz. Eventually, Boaz marries Ruth and fathers Jesse, who in turn fathers David. Ultimately the line, and if you read through the part we so often skip in Matthew 1. Where Rahab is mentioned in the New Testament, you see the line eventually continues on to Jesus. So what's your Jericho? What's that nudging, that little tapping that God taps you that you just want to tap back and go, stop that? No! Elbow, elbow, elbow. Like at first glance, God's calling you to take on the big bad fortress. Going back to last week, the big bad giant. Remember. Remember last week, it wasn't about us following after David and, you know, let's envision ourselves taking over the giant. It's not us thinking... Let's, in in and of ourselves, let's rob ourselves to take over Jericho and bring its walls down. But remember, the God who called you into action to take the fortress, to beat the giant, to stand up in front of people and share a story, to share a testimony, musical or vocal or whatever, here's the promise Whatever size your Jericho is, whatever kind of flavor your Jericho is, I promise you the God who called you to take it is just a little bit bigger. Let's pray together. Lord, help us. Help us to trust in you. To trust that you do not call us to take over the the Jerichos or to defeat the Goliaths on our own. But you are willing to do it for us if we just count on you and take that step of faith, of trust. Give us those chances to learn once again for our forgetful brains. You are a God who shows up when you call us out, out of the boat, into the water, into the storm. And through you, we walk. We watch the walls Crumble. We watch the giant fall. For all this, we give you praise and glory. Amen.